Good morning. Again, yeah, it is a privilege to, to be able to give today's message. Um, and thank you, Pastor Eric, for giving me the opportunity once again. And, um, you know, it's been, yeah, almost close to two years since we've called uh, CBC our home. And so we've been loving it, loving getting to know each and every one of you. A special shout out to my our small group, Stone Small Group. Uh, it's been an amazing blessing to, to do life with you guys. Um, Normally, we go to, to first service. We actually sit, me and Ashley and I, we sit over there. That's like our spot right there. So if you want to come say hi, you can come say hi. We're always there. And, and like Pastor Eric said, we have three amazing daughters, Alyssa, who's 11, Alexis, is who eight, who's 8, and Audrey, who's 5. And as you might notice, they're all A names. So we call ourselves the A team. And then we also go by number order. So you can actually refer to our kids and they'll refer, they'll know, recognize their number. So if you say like, Alyssa, you'll be like, A3. She'll be like, oh yeah, that, that's me. So she'll, she'll know that. But again, yeah, thank you for, for the privilege to, to be able to give God's message uh, this morning. So uh, about a couple months ago, um, on May 30th, uh, my wife and I, we celebrated our 14th uh, wedding anniversary. And if you're trying to do the math to kind of see how old we are, uh, I'll help you out. We got married when we were 12, okay? <laughs> so then if you add that 12 and the 14, that, that goes to 26. So we're 26 years old. Actually, I'm just kidding, but um, 26 is the age that we got married. So now if you do the math again, 26 plus 14, it's 40, so we're 40 years old, okay? But uh, I remember celebrating, or we celebrated our anniversary. We didn't do anything extravagant. We went to a nice restaurant. It was just a time to just celebrate and then just have a, you know, a quiet dinner without kids, and, and, it, and it was great to do that. But it made me remember kind of back in the day uh, when we first started dating, how maybe every special occasion, whether it be a birthday or an anniversary, uh, we would try to celebrate it. We would go to these great lengths to celebrate it, do something you know, nice and planned for it. But one of the holidays that I've always been a little confused about has been Valentine's Day, right? Um, you know, don't, don't you kind of feel that too, where you feel like it's almost this commercial ploy to just like jack up the prices a little bit and then make you go on a date or like, and then just, you know, it's not something that is like supposed to be that special. But yet, I remember kind of in the early stages of dating, you, you do celebrate Valentine's Day. But then I wondered, you know, later on, you kind of, you know, don't celebrate it as much. Um, kind of our story, Ashley and I, so we actually met each other both at, at Boston University. Uh, Ashley was a sophomore at the time, and I was an incoming freshman. And so she was the older one, and I was the, the younger one. And so she had her sights set on the young freshman crop. And then she, she saw me, and she was like, oh, he's so irresistible. So she went after me. She's going to kill me. She's like shaking her head. So, right. So to, to set the record straight, I set my sights on her, I met her, and she doesn't even remember when we first met, but I, I remember, and then I went after her, I pursued her for six months straight, and then finally wore her down to the point where she finally accepted to be my girlfriend. But I do remember when we first started dating, right, every time you had a special occasion, you would, you know, go to great lengths to, to celebrate it. And even in particular for Valentine's Day, I, I remember going out to great lengths for that too, right? I'd make sure I got her flowers, I would set up a nice date, a good, a good dinner date, and then we would go and do something romantic. 
But maybe a couple years into our relationship, Ashley and I agreed that we wouldn't celebrate Valentine's Day anymore, right? And that we, again, agreed that it was just this commercial manufactured event that you had to, had to do. And so I remember we decided that we weren't going to celebrate it. And I remember in 2005, we had been dating for about three years now, and now our relationship was actually long distance. So Ashley had graduated, she moved to New York City, and I was still finishing up my senior year at Boston. And so we would try to you know, meet up once a month, and I would either go down to Boston or she would come up to, to New York City. Um, but I remember that particular year we decided together, hey, we're not gonna celebrate Valentine's Day. And so a week was right before Valentine's Day, we again decided because our meeting, our, our schedules were so, you know, packed, we said we're not going to, you know, see each other during Valentine's Day, so we're just not going to do anything during that day. And then I remember, I thought I was just kind of, I just wanted to clarify with her, so I thought I was asking a very straightforward question. And so I'm recalling her up, and then I asked her, should I get you flowers? Right? And her response at the time was, no, you don't have to get me flowers, it's not worth buying flowers because, you know, it's really expensive during Valentine's Day, so don't buy me flowers, okay? And so then I asked one more time. I said, so you're good if I don't send you flowers? And she says, no, I'm good. You don't have to get me flowers. I was like, awesome, right? Like, this is great. I get to save money on this Valentine's Day, right? It's rookie mistake, Okay. Fellas, I'm telling you this story as a cautionary tale of what not to do, okay? So I'm thinking to myself, okay, I've got to keep her. She's so low maintenance. She's so practical, so she's so easygoing, right? So eventually, Valentine's Day comes around. And it's Valentine's Day. I remember walking around campus. You see different girls with, like, red balloons or chocolates or stuffed animals, right? And I'm just thinking to myself, it's like, I don't have to spend money on that anymore. I don't have to send it to, to my girlfriend, Right? And again, it was long distance, so I don't know if you remember back in the day where you actually had limited minutes, so you had like 250 minutes, 300 minutes, and so because our, our schedules were always so busy, we always agreed that we would only call each other at night because we only had a limited amount of minutes to use, and only nights and weekends were, were free minutes. And so at 9 o'clock, I remember that night, I was like, I gave her a call, and I call up Ashley, and just to wish her like happy Valentine's Day, she picks up. And right away, there's like silence for a little bit. And then she's like, so you really didn't get me anything for Valentine's Day? Right? And I was taken aback, a little bit confused. And I said, yeah, I, I thought you said that I don't need to, to send you flowers. And, she, and I thought it was cool. And she's like, yeah, I, I was, but you didn't send me anything? Not even a card? Right? And so I was like, oh, shoot, I'm in trouble, right? But... I said, no, 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 I actually, I sent you an e-card, right? They had those back then where you, you know, put in an email address and they send you a card. And to this day, it's a mystery because we don't know where that e-card is. <laughs> I, I, I believe without a doubt, I sent her an e-card. I might have gotten the email address wrong or something, but it never got to her, right? And so then, so she's like saying, okay, you didn't get me anything. And so I got a little defensive, and I was like, why is it that the guy always have to, has to do something? Like, it's not like you got me anything. She's like, did you check your mail today? I was like, no. And she's like, well, check your mail, because I did send you something. I sent you a card and a little gift. And I was like, oh, shoot. All right, I'm dead. 
And so that night, it was a bad night. We were just like arguing on the phone, and I was just trying to apologize. Uh, and finally, you know, we, we worked it out. But I, I remember during that thing, that, that incident, I thought I was asking a really straightforward question of, should I get you flowers? And I thought when she replied, no, it's, it's okay, you don't have to get me flowers, that I was fully off the hook, that I didn't have to do anything for her, and that was my mistake. I, I thought I asked this really straightforward question, but yet there was actually some underlying, maybe deeper questions that needed to be answered. And I think that maybe the question that was on Ashley's mind at that time uh, in her response was that maybe she was wondering, despite her telling me not to get her flowers, would I, you know, set that aside and still get her something, right? Or maybe even though she told me not to do something, that I would set aside maybe my frugality and maybe spend a little bit more on this day to get her something special, right? And so I know some of you guys might be thinking that seems like a test or seems like a trap, right? But, and maybe it is, but I think I, in that moment, I failed miserably. I didn't really get the underlying questions. There are definitely times that we are actually given a straightforward and maybe even an obvious kind of question, and we respond without thinking much to it. But sometimes there's actually more deeper underlying questions that are at play. And so today I want to look at a time when Jesus asks a question that seems straightforward, but actually there are some of the more implicit questions that need to be answered. There's some more deeper underlying questions. So today we're going to be looking at John 5, and we're going to be focusing on an interaction that Jesus has with a man who's an invalid. And so if you have your Bibles with you, if you can actually whip up Bibles on your, on your app, or you can just kind of look up on the screen, it's going to be John 5, 1 through 15. And so let me read it for us. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool which is in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. Or once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. The day in which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, the law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. This is the word of God. Would you just bow your heads in a quick moment of prayer? Lord, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Lord, um, for your love and your grace, God. Um, and I just pray, Lord, this, this morning, God, that you would just really open up our eyes, our ears, our hearts uh, to be attentive to, to what it is that you want to say to us, Lord, and that you would go um, deeper within some of the questions that, that we might have, God. And so may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our heart be pleasing to you. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let me uh, sprinkle on a, a bit of context for you in this passage. Right? So it says that Jesus has gone up to Jerusalem and comes to a pool that's called Bethesda. And there was somewhat of this urban legend about this particular pool where many people were gathering around. Many people with different disabilities would gather around. And the, the belief was that this pool had some kind of like healing power. The, the myth was that if you saw this pool being stirred or you saw it moving without maybe the wind blowing really hard, that there was this assumption or this thought that maybe it was an angel or a spirit that was moving it. And so the minute they saw something, someone saw something, the first person that jumped into the water or touched the water, they thought would be healed. And so there was this superstitious thought about it. There was this urban legend about it. And so that's why there was people gathered around this pool for years. Uh, many scholars would say that this is actually pretty common for people to think, that this is, you know, something that's very superstitious, a location, that there's something in a lore about it, and so people would gather around it. And so that was the thought about this pool, that it had some kind of healing powers. And so it says that Jesus goes to this pool and sees a crowd of people who have these physical ailments. And there Jesus notices this paraplegic man, this man that was unable to use his legs, and he goes to him and finds that he's been in this condition for many years. And there Jesus asks him this very straightforward, almost obvious kind of question, as I referred to. In some ways, this particular question could even be seen as like just downright offensive, because Jesus had heard that this man had been in this condition for many years, and yet Jesus asks this man this question, do you want to get well? At first, when you hear this question, your response might be like this, right? Of course he wants to get well. He's, he's been lying around this pool for all these years trying to get healed. Of course he wants to get well, right? The, the question comes off as being insulting. But that's not the intention of what Jesus was trying to get at. He was just saying this, this, this question to get at something maybe deeper. And I believe it's confronting us with some, actually for us, as we hear this question, maybe some deeper underlying questions that, that we need to, to respond to or to answer. And I would contend that God is trying to get at these two pairs of questions for us. And the first pair of, pair of questions that Jesus is really trying to ask is, what do you really want and what, does what you want make you well? What do you really want and does what you want make you well? If you were to ask yourself these questions of, of what do you really want? What does your heart desire? We might get a bunch of different responses, right? For this man, maybe his response would initially be that his physical ailment would be healed, right? For many of us, if you were asked that question, right, we'd say we just want our lives to go well, that we want to have happy lives. We want to get to happiness, right? We, we want to make sure that our lives are, are, are going well, right? Um, when Jesus asks this question of, do you want to get well, in, in the King James Version, there's a translation. The way it translates it is, wilt thou be made whole? Let me translate that back to normal English. Do you want to be made whole? And so the underlying question of what do you really want, right, is that, is getting at what is that desire that you have? And does that desire actually make you whole? Does that make you well? And I think for many of us, many of us there's various things that we think will make us well. Right? And then ultimately we realize 
that it actually doesn't make us well. For many of us, we, we might turn to things like money, wealth, materialism. We tell ourselves, if I just make this much money, if I get to this amount in terms of my salary, or if I get this car, or if I get this kind of house, then my life would be complete. Then I will be content with my life, right? And I will feel better about myself, right? We fall into this trap of desiring more and more money, more and more things to, to fill our lives, to fill a void that we might have, to find some kind of happiness in the things that we can obtain, right? And thinking that if we get to that point, then we will be made whole. Then we will feel well. I once heard this illustration, but it said, greed is like drinking salt water when thirsty. You realize the more you drink of that salt water, the more thirsty you get. And it doesn't matter how much more and more you drink, your thirst never gets quenched. And so for some of us, maybe we foolishly think that if we just had more money or more things or we got more, more of this, then I'll become happy. But we find that it never truly leads to joy or happiness. For some of us, it may not be greed or money, but maybe it's actually desiring a certain kind of relationship. Maybe some of you, the responses to this question is, as if I were to find a girlfriend or, or a boyfriend that would lead to eventually become my, my wife or my, my husband, then I will, my life would be complete. Or maybe it's this desire, oh, if, if finally, if my parents approve of me or tell me that they're proud of me, then my life is complete. And in this instance, these, this desire for a good relationship is not necessarily a bad thing, right? Being blessed with a spouse is a beautiful thing. Being loved and fully accepted by, by your family, again, a beautiful and amazing thing. But if this is your one and only desire, you'll be left disappointed because people will let you down. It's inevitable because none of us are, are perfect. I don't want to get myself in more trouble here with Ash, but... Um, she used to always tease me when the first, first actually week or so that we started dating. I remember I was just talking to her and I said, you know, I, I was so infatuated and I said, you know, I could never, ever get mad at you. You're perfect, right? To which she just laughed and she was like, no, I'm not perfect and I'm pretty sure I'm going to annoy you. And I was like, no, you will never annoy me, right? And she's like, All right, well, I'm going to remember this because when, when our first fight happens, I'll remember this. And she actually still brings this up till this day that I said that, right? And lo and behold, we got into a, our first fight maybe a, a week or so later, and, she, she, and I maybe got annoyed of her or something, right? But she had a realistic understanding of how relationships work, right? They're not always rainbows and butterflies, but I believe that some of us, we idolize relationships to think that once we achieve them, then our life is complete. We, we think like Jerry Maguire. Do you, do you remember that movie? Great movie. Right, where he pleads with his wife and he has that famous line, you complete me. Right? We think like him. Right? Or that if we have that relationship, that will complete us. But we find that isn't the case. Relationships alone don't fully make us well. They don't fully make us whole. 
Another thing, and I think this one is probably the most common amongst us, is this, this desire to want significance or success. Um, over the years, I, I've worked with many young adults, and conversation after conversation, the recurring theme that I, I found with many of these young adults is that they're struggling to, to find their place, find their purpose or their significance in this world. And of course, this isn't something that's exclusive to young adults. This is actually like every generation struggles with this, right? This, this idea of how do I find significance? How do I find success? Or maybe what's the legacy that I leave behind? How am I going to be remembered? What's my impact into this world? We in some ways desire to find some of that meaning in our lives by what we can do or produce, right? To feel like we're making an impact. When I was preparing for this message, I, I listened to a sermon um, given by a pastor that has a, a great name. His name is Abraham Cho. Um, he's out in, in Redeemer Church in, in New York City, right? Uh, you don't meet too many Abrahams, so that's why I say it. Um, and I actually don't even like my name, but uh, that's a, for another story. <laughs> but um, he was referencing a, a chef that he, he saw on a show, on a very famous Netflix show called Chef's Table. Um, and I have a slide for you. And in this particular episode, it spotlights a, a chef named Dan Barber. And this particular episode is episode, volume one, episode two, so if you want to watch it. And so Dan Barber is the owner and chef at a restaurant in New York City called Blue Hill. And one of the things about Dan Barber is, is that his obsession with the farm-to-table concept, right, that you would take the freshest of foods from the farm and bring it straight to, the, to your your table, and you would eat it, right? And so he was one of the innovators of this, and he had such a great passion and obsession with this kind of food. And he would get all these critics saying, like, his food is amazing, he's one of the best, right? And in the middle of the episode, he actually gives this quote, and, and China kind of explains what's his desire, what, what drives him, and he says this, there's one way to look at my life as really exemplary, in the sense that we have two restaurants that have been very successful. And there's another way to look at it. It's quite sad. A lot of this work is the attempt to fill some kind of sadness or something that I didn't have in my life that I wish I had, filling a void. Are we doing this because we had this void in our life we're trying to make up for? Isn't our life one attempt to fill a void after another? I don't know if I'm succeeding or not, but I'm trying hard. See, Dan Barber really gets at the core of that question that I believe that God is actually even asking us, right? As he asks this invalid man, do you want to get well? Do you want to be made whole? Jesus is getting at that deeper question of what is it that each of us truly desires? And will that thing actually make you well? And we come to find that the things that we're desiring don't actually make us well and whole. They don't quench the thirst and the longing that we have to be made whole. And we often miss out on God. We miss out on what God wants to give to us. You know, just before this passage in John 5, Jesus meets a woman in, in, at the well on John, in John 4. And as he's speaking to this woman, he says to, to her, he says, everyone who drinks this water, referring to the physical water of this well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus ends up revealing the truth that what we really, what we really should want 
is actually Jesus. Jesus is the only one that can make us well, that can make us whole. So Jesus is revealing that truth to us and invites us to accept it, to believe it for ourselves. Here's the second pair of questions that Jesus is getting at. Uh, Jesus asks this man, uh, do you want to get well? His underlying questions could be, do you believe that Jesus can truly make you well? And how will you respond to that belief? So soon after Jesus asks this question to the, to the man, he says, you know, do you want to get well? Right? The man actually doesn't immediately respond with, uh, yes, I want to get well, right? Instead, he gives a little bit of a, an excuse and continues to explain his situation a bit, right? In the passage, he tells, tells Jesus, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. His response gives a little bit more color to, to his situation. When we find that this man had been in this condition for 38 years, right? Like I said before, I am 40 years old, right? And when I turned 40, people said, okay, now, now you're officially old, right? And I was like, what? No. Right. But when I think about my life, right, I realize, yeah, 40 years is a long time. So 38 years, to have a condition for 38 years, that's a really long time. Can you imagine being in this condition for 38 years and there's no improvement, there's no hope for you? And so he explains that every time he does see the water stirred, he tries to get in, but someone beats him to it, right? And so he doesn't get healed. And so he explains to, him, to Jesus, yeah, I don't have any friends that even help me. And so when he says that he has no friends, we realize, too, not only is he having this physical ailment, he's actually relationally, socially isolated. There, there was this belief back in the day that if you had some kind of big injury or big, um, you know, condition, they thought it was because you were a deserving sinner, right? And that because of that, then you were isolated. You were pushed to the margins of society. And so this paraplegic man, he not only had he this, this condition, but he was socially and relationally isolated from everyone else, right? So here's this man who's physically suffering, but not only that, he's suffering emotionally and relationally. And so in this response to Jesus, you can sense the kind of hopelessness that this man is feeling. He's been waiting for years to get that healing. And finally, here at this point, he has this moment with Jesus, who maybe he's heard about in, in stories or whatnot. Right? And this man, Jesus, comes up to him and he asks him, if he wants to get well. And so after he explains the whole situation, Jesus commands him and he says, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And there in that moment, the man comes to faith, put his faith in Jesus, and he responds immediately with his actions. The scriptures say, at once the man is healed. Instead of making any more excuses or, or not believing Jesus, he picks up his mat and he begins to walk. And imagine that feeling. For the first time in 38 years, he feels this tingling sensation at his feet and his legs. He feels the dirt in between his toes as he stands up. Right? And there's this joy that fills in, in, his, in his soul, right? in delight, as Jesus has healed him and made him physically whole once again. But it didn't just stop there. In that moment, Jesus also heals him relationally because we later we find that Jesus finds him in the temple. And for those that were on the margins of society, they weren't allowed into the temple to be in community. 
And so now Jesus finds him in the temple where he has, is able to be in communion with other people. So not only does Jesus heal him physically, he heals him socially, relationally, and also emotionally. He heals him entirely. He makes him fully whole and fully well. And so we're left with a pair of underlying questions for each of us. Do you believe that Jesus can make you well? And then how will you respond to that faith? So a few summers ago, in the midst of the pandemic, our family experienced a pretty big milestone during that time. My second daughter, A4, Alexis, um, at the time she was five years old, and she had been watching her older sister, Alyssa, uh, who was eight at the time, uh, just riding her bike around with her dad. And so she was like, you know, I, I want to do that too. I want to be like my older sister. I want to ride a bike. And so she came up to me and she said, hey, Appa, can you teach me how to ride a bike? And I said, sure, of course, I'll teach you. And so we started back in June of that year, and we did everything that you would normally do to help someone ride a bike, right? We put training wheels on the bike and have her try to, try to pedal on it, right? And then we gave her a balance bike, and we took off the, you know, the, the pedals and maybe see if she, could, she can go ahead and, and balance on it. And, and we tried all these different things, and, and, I, and at times, I just, there wasn't much improvement. And I was kind of losing out on hope. There wasn't much progress happening. And I confess, I probably wasn't the most patient with Alexis. So much so that Alyssa um, called me out and went, to, to, went to, to Ashley and she said, you know, why is Appa being so mean to Alexis? He wasn't this mean to me when I was, when I was learning, right? And I heard that and I was like, it just hit me like a ton of bricks because that was the truth. I, I wasn't the most patient. I wasn't the most understanding. I was losing my cool way too quickly. I was yelling at, at Alexis, and, and there were many times that I just needed to ask for forgiveness from my daughter. And each time, she would offer me grace. She would forgive me right away. Uh, but after weeks and weeks of training, I was just getting less and less hopeful because there wasn't much progress. Until one day, it finally clicked. So on this day, uh, the day actually didn't start out great. I would hold up Alexis as she pedaled and tried to balance. And each time, for some odd reason, when she's trying to ride her bike, she would always lean left, right? It's always left. And so after like 10 tries, and each time she would lean left and then kind of fall over, and I snapped at her again, and I yelled, and I said, Stop leaning to the left! Why are you doing that? And normally, whenever I yell at her, she would cry, right? But for some reason, that day, she didn't cry. She just kind of held it in. She didn't want to disappoint me. And so I was able to kind of catch myself. So I took a, a deep breath, and I apologized. And, and then I thought for a minute, minute. And then it was in this moment that I feel like God gave me the words to speak because I was so frustrated. I was so angry in that moment. Um, I didn't know what to say. And so I remember saying these words to Alexis. I said, you can ride a bike. You just need to believe that you can do it. And even if you don't do it this time, or don't do it any time, Appa still loves you. Appa loves you no matter what. And I, I don't know, you know where those words came from, um, but I, and I feel like it had to be God in that moment. And so something crazy happened, right? Alexis's demeanor changed. 
And then she just looks me back in the eyes and she says, Appa, I believe I can do it. And so I kid you not, the very next try, this is what she does. And if you can roll the, the video. Go, Legas. Notice she's leaning to the left still. And then if you're kind of wondering, what are we saying? We're saying, go Legis, look, go Legis. At the time, Audrey, our youngest, couldn't say Alexis's name, so she would call her Legis instead. So that became her, her nickname. But it was, an, it was an awesome moment, right? Um, Alexis figured out how to ride a bike, so she comes back to me and she says, I did it. <laughs> I just needed to believe in myself. Before, I didn't believe that I could do it, but, but now I, I can do it. And so she just, she was so happy. She's like, I can ride a bike now. And so I remember giving her yeah, a huge hug and I was just spinning her around and I was like, this is, this is great. This is such a special moment. It was a special moment for her. But it was actually a special moment for me too in that I actually learned something really big that day too. I felt like God was wanting to actually learn that same truth, uh, which is my value, my worth is not tied to what I can accomplish or do but it's rooted in being a child of God. I needed to believe that for myself too. Ironically, for years and years, I, I'd been trying to fill this void in my life by doing more ministry for God. I felt like if I could do more for the kingdom of God, then maybe I'll be more valuable. I'll be more successful or I'll, that God would love me more. Uh, during this time, I was actually really in a dark place. I was, I was going towards burnout and... Um, and for many years, even before that, I had been struggling with depression and anxiety. And this was probably one of my worst seasons ever when you couple it in with a global pandemic and feeling isolated. Uh, but I remember actually, during this time, I was actually having very suicidal thoughts. Um, uh, that same summer, I kept having this recurring thought of, if I, I should just go and swim out into Lake Washington and just swim out as far as I can until I get so tired that I drown. And then I thought to myself, my family will be okay. It's okay if I'm gone. So I was in this really dark place. And so this moment was an eye-opener for me. This experience with Alexis, God was teaching me that Jesus is the only one to fill that void and that God loves me so dearly and unconditionally. Just as I told my daughter Alexis that I love her no matter what, that it doesn't matter whether she rides this bike or not, I still love her no matter what. I actually needed to hear that for myself. That it's not whether I can do more for God's kingdom, that, that I can do more as a pastor, that all these things I felt like I was trying to prove my worth, that God was trying to tell me, no, I love you for who you are, that you are a child of God. I knew that truth in my head for all these years, but I didn't truly believe it with my heart. Just as Alexis needed to believe that she could ride this bike and then it allowed her to experience the breakthrough of actually doing it, I needed to believe that as well. That God loves me no matter what, unconditionally. That I am indeed a child of God who is deeply loved by the Father. And it's the same message that God wants each of us to receive as well. That God loves you so much. There's nothing that you could do or not do that will ever change that. That God loves you. 
God loves you so much that Jesus came into this world, died on the cross in excruciating death for you and rose from the dead. In his resurrection, that's when we experience true freedom and victory and that's how we are made whole once again. And God offers that to each and every one of us to realize that we are accepted and loved by the Father. That we are only made whole through believing in that truth and how much God loves us. So again, we are brought back to this important question. Do you want to get well? Let me pray for us.